You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Proverbs chapter 7 is where I am opening my Bible. I would invite you to open your Bible there as well. This is the fifth and final message in the series, Marriage is Obsolete and Other Modern Marriage Myths. We are trying to replace these myths with the truth. We started out saying the myth, number one, is that marriage is obsolete. We replace that with the truth that marriage is good. It's good for you. It's good for society. It's good for your children. The second week, we looked at myth number two, which was marriage will make me happy. And if you're married, you know that's a myth. And uh, we replaced that with the truth that marriage will make me better. And if marriage makes me better, I've got a better chance of being happy. Then we looked at another myth that a lot of people believe. It's that love will hold my marriage together. It's true for about three weeks. And then when that feeling fades, you're going to need something more than a feeling to sustain your marriage. So we replace that myth with this truth. It's marriage that holds my love together. We got a better definition of love based on 1 Corinthians 13, God's definition of love. And then last week, we looked at myth number four, which was my kids will be fine even if my marriage isn't. But the truth is the health of my marriage greatly impacts the health of my children. I'm modeling marriage for my children and whether or not they want to wear it will depend on how good I make it look in front of them. So that brings us to the fifth and final myth. Here it is. A lot of people believe this one. God wants to keep sex from me. That's not true. The truth is... God wants to keep sex for me. We're going to see it here from this passage of Scripture in Hebrews 13. I'm just going to throw it on the screen. I'll meet you in Proverbs 7 in just a minute. But here's Hebrews 13, 4. It says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Do you remember when you took like speech 101 in college or public speaking class? How many of you remember that? And you remember being in speech? Remember having to give your speech and being terrified and just hating every moment of that class? Yeah, I never experienced that. I like that class. So anyway, um, the first thing they teach you in that class is this. You have to know your audience, right? Because you want to develop a a speech that's going to speak specifically to the specific people in the audience. Do you know how hard that is to do when you're the pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel? Because every Sunday morning, there's all kinds of different people that show up in this room. There's people here for the very first time. I met a couple here for the very first time. I encourage them to come back. Not, didn't try to run them off today, but this was what they got this morning for their very first Sunday. There's others of you here that, were very, that have been here ever since the very first Sunday and you are plugged in and you're a member and you're all on board and you got a pen out and you're ready to write down anything so you can change your life according to whatever God says to you. That's you. That's great. You're here this morning. There are 12-year-olds in this room that the flood of hormones is just now beginning to wash over their brains and giving them interest in these types of things. And there's people here that are single. There's people here that are winning this battle. There's people here that are addicted to sexual immorality. There's men here. There's women here. I would tailor this message differently if I was just talking to the 12-year-olds. I would say things differently if I'm just talking to men. I would say things differently if there's just a bunch of 
skeptics of Jesus in here, and I would tailor it differently if it was just a bunch of hot-hearted, passionate disciples of Jesus. But I get to say it all to everybody. I'm comforted a little bit by what it says in the first line of this verse. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All middle schoolers need to hold marriage honorably. All skeptics of Jesus need to hold marriage honorably. All disciples, all men, all of those of you that spent your week flooded in pornography need to have a high view of marriage. Now, depending on who you are this morning, let me say this. I would not expect you to hold marriage in honor if you do not have a high view of God. Why would I expect you to have a high view of marriage if you don't have a high view of God? If you don't have a high view of God, I would probably not sit down and start talking to you about marriage. I would probably start talking to you about your view of God. And once you get a high view of God, now you're interested in what God has to say about marriage. There's another group of people in here that um, I would expect to have a higher view of marriage. It's those of you who have actually been broken by sexual sin. Those of you that have wrecked your life or somebody has wrecked your life or your relationships or your marriage and here you are coming with the little broken pieces of doing it your way and now you might be a little more interested in doing it God's way to hold marriage in honor. That's our challenge. That's what we've been trying to do in this series is to hold up how honorable marriage is. The second line of this passage says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. You know what that means? Write this down. It's a very revolutionary truth. I'm sure you've never heard this before. Just write this down or memorize it. Here it is. God reserves sex for married people. Is that surprising to anybody? You may have not even read that in the Bible, and you may have not, but you, you probably knew that, right? Sex is reserved for married people. That's why he says that in the context of marriage, you're to build these fences and boundaries and guardrails around your sexuality and only practice sex in the context of a covenant love relationship called marriage. And when you cross the boundaries and start playing with sex outside of those guardrails, you defile it, you pollute it, you devalue it. Looking at our culture, you would think that, goodness, our culture just, they think they can't live without sex. It's like the most valuable thing. No, our problem is not that we value sex too much. Our problem is that we value sex too little. If you have never really read the Bible, you would probably think the Bible just on every page probably tells, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, that sex is dirty. That is not the biblical view of sex. As a matter of fact, the most spectacular thing the Bible has to say about sex is this. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife, the physical intimacy between a husband and wife is a reflection of the spiritual intimacy between God and man. And if you have never let your mind be blown away by the spirit 
spiritual intimacy between you and God, you probably have a low view of the physical intimacy that God intended to be exclusively practiced by a husband and wife. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And John Piper said it this way. He said, you don't build fences around weeds. Now, some of you do. I've seen some of your yards, and some of our yards look like that too. But you don't, that you don't intentionally protect weeds, right? What do you build fences around? You build fences around gardens, right? You don't put your dirty socks and your trash in the safe. You put your jewelry in the safe because it's so valuable, it's so beautiful, and thieves want to steal it. And so we put guardrails and boundaries and protect it. God wants to guard sex as a gift for you. He wants to govern sex so you don't pollute it or defile it. He wants to govern it as a disciple of Jesus Christ I put my sexuality under his lordship. And so this is one of the greatest battles for holiness in our lives is in relation to our sex lives. The last line says this, and it's a warning. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Does that frighten you? It should. A holy God is watching what you do with the good gift of sex that he's given you. And he will judge you based on whether or not you keep sex within the boundaries God intended. Now listen, my, my job is not to judge you. My job is not to condemn you. My job is to warn you that God is holy that sex outside of marriage is off limits. And one day we will all stand before him in judgment. The truth is God has already judged sexual immorality. He's already decided what he thinks about it. His opinion hasn't changed about it as the culture has evolved. God's view of sex has not. God will judge the sexually immoral. And you will either be judged guilty or innocent. Now, let me just say this. One of the tools of the devil as it relates to sexual sin is to try to get you to think you are the only one who has ever stepped outside of the boundaries that God's put on the sexual relationship. I want to do a counterattack on the devil right now. You see, the power of sexual sin is in the secrecy. And if God can keep you just playing around with it in secret, I'm sorry, if, if Satan can keep you playing around with it in secret, then uh, you'll think that I don't have to repent. So let me just ask you this, all right? I've already talked about all the different groups of people. Some of you haven't moved since I've started this. Some of you haven't breathed. And so everybody just take a deep breath. It's like, I don't want to move for fear that someone might think that I am guilty. I can't take notes right now because somebody might think I need this message, okay? That, that, that's what the devil does. He tries to get you to think. It's like, you know, just don't, you just pretend like you've never done this. Can I just pull his mask off for a second? Let me ask this question. If you either in the past or in the present, have any regret whatsoever about stepping outside of God's boundaries on sex, would you just please raise your hand? 
along with mine. My hand is in the air, okay? So about half the people have their hands in the air, the other half are lying. We have all <laughs> stepped out of bounds sexually. If you've ever had a lustful thought, if you've ever looked at pornography, if you've ever taken a second look at something that you were not in a covenant love relationship with in marriage, if you have ever committed fornication, if you have ever committed adultery, if you have ever inappropriately touched someone that you have not entered into covenant love relationship with, whether homosexual or heterosexual, you are sexually immoral. That's a problem because this tells me God's going to judge the sexually immoral. He's either going to judge me guilty or innocent. And I can be judged innocent if I will embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus, his son, as if he was a sexual sinner. He was not a sexual sinner. But God treated him as if he was a sexual sinner. So that all of those who believe in Jesus and embrace his sacrifice and will bring their sexuality under his lordship can be treated as if they had never sinned sexually, even though I am not innocent. I can be treated as if I was innocent. Because God will judge the sexually immoral, God judged Jesus to be sexually immoral. Jesus took my judgment so I can take his innocence, his purity. So that's the only hope that any of us have for escaping the judgment of, Christ, of God. And so we're going to dive in here. And uh, in Proverbs chapter 7, there is a wonderful, vivid picture of how to avoid sexual sin. I'm going to believe that if you went to the trouble to pack up and come to church today, there is an inkling of desire to live within the boundaries of God's plan for marriage and sexuality. So if you want to avoid it, I want you to see this story. Now we're about to dive, in, dive into it here. And the good news is this. It's not a list of commands. If you've never read the Bible, you just probably think, man, it's just a bunch of lists that says, do not, have, do not have sex. If you do have sex, don't enjoy sex. That's not what it says. We're going to see a little narrative here, and I want to set it up for you, okay? I want you to pretend for a few minutes you have not stepped into the auditorium of Harvest Bible Chapel. I want you to pretend that you have gotten dressed up and you've come into a very ornate theater. There's red velvet chairs and you sit down in those red velvet chairs and you got a big bucket of popcorn and there's a stage in front of you with a big red velvet curtain there and, and you're ready to see a play, a drama. The lights go dim. They eventually go completely out. A man steps to the center of the stage. A spotlight hits him and you look a little closer and you recognize that guy. That's my dad in a tuxedo. What's he doing there? He grabs the microphone and he looks at you and he says, Proverbs 7, 1, My son, 
Keep my commandments. Treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. What's the implication if you don't keep the commandments? You're going to die. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. What's the apple of your eye? It's the very sinless, the, the pupil. Have you ever gotten so close to someone that you could actually see your reflection in their eye? That's the apple of their eye. And God wants you to gaze so intently on his boundaries for sex that it's right in the center. You never let your eye move off center. He goes on in verse 3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Do you remember when you were in middle school before there were cell phones? And if you got a girl's phone number, where'd you write it? On your hand. So if you never had the pleasure of getting a girl's phone number, I'm so sorry. Um, we'll talk about that later. So you just write that on your hand or maybe you had a homework assignment or some important information or maybe you just doodle in your arm. You couldn't find a piece of paper. Anybody walk home with stuff all over your arm at the end of the day? Yeah. So what, the reason is because that's important information. And you knew if you wrote it on your arm, you couldn't get any further than that far away from it. He said, write it on your arm. Go to the tattoo parlor and get a tattoo of Proverbs 7 on, on your arm. Church will pay for it. We'll, we'll figure out a way, okay? <laughs> Verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. How many of you have a sister? How many of you like your sister? A few hands went down. I see all that. Well, your sister is supposed to be a close relationship, okay? Somebody that helps you even navigate this area of your life. He says, say to wisdom, you're my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. Just write BFF right there. Insight is my best friend forever. And why is he doing all of this? What has your dad done? He's rented out this ornate theater and he's dressed up and he's invited you here to communicate this message. The first two words he says is my son. 23 times in Proverbs, he uses that two-word phrase, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. And by the way, you can flip the gender around any way you want to here. Uh, actually, you just get two options, but it's either, you know, my son, my daughter, my dad, my mother, my sister, my brother. It, the gender is not important here. Um, but what he's trying to say is, I have a responsibility to help you navigate the sexual temptation in your life what are you trying to say to me he tells you why he's done all of this in verse 5 to keep you from the forbidden woman the translation that I learned this in was the King James and it uses an interesting word there it's it calls her the strange woman it's even footnoted in the ESV as a strange woman Have you ever met a strange woman you ever met a strange guy? Yeah, it's somebody who, their intentions were not good. And he goes on and says, to keep you from the adulteress with her smooth words. Spotlight goes out on your dad. All of a sudden, this curtain opens up and you now see the stage, the set for the drama that's about to be acted out for you, and it looks something like this. It's a house. And at the top of the house, we begin to read in verse six. 
For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, not lettuce, it's lattice, right? Lattice is that stuff that vines grow on. So he's looking out a top floor window at what's going on down in the street. There's a street going this way. There's a street coming this way. And his house sits at the intersection. He's looking out from the top floor at the intersection and he sees someone. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. There's seven steps into sexual immorality. Here's the first one. Simple curiosity. You see the word simple there? Simple does not mean stupid. I looked it up. I got my big Hebrew lexicon out. I said, I want to impress the people this week to find out what this word means. And so I'm going to give them a really technical Hebrew definition of this word simple. I looked it up. Here's what I found in my lexicon. It says, space in the head. <laughs> That's what it means to be simple. You have a vacuum in your mind. Now listen, we all show up in the world this way. There's space and it is the job of a mom and a dad to, spill, to fill up the empty space with wisdom. When mom and dad don't do a great job at that, the kid grows up, turns into a teenager and there's space in his head that should have been filled with wisdom. And instead, it gets filled with whatever's on Netflix or whatever's on YouTube, or whatever he's carrying around in his pocket, or whatever his friends tell him in the locker room. That's what ends up in the space. So it's the job of mom and dad to fill up the space in the head so that he doesn't grow up simple. So he sees a simple man. It's the first step into sexual immorality. Simple curiosity. Now, he hasn't sinned yet. He hasn't become sexually immoral yet. He's just taken a step toward it. I got to thinking about how the very first command God ever gave, you know what it was? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave that command to Adam and Eve. Now, we don't know how long it was between God said, don't eat the fruit and Eve ate the, ate the fruit. But I'm thinking it was a gradual, slow progression. Maybe Eve is looking across the garden and she sees this tree and it's so beautiful and she admires how strong it looks and how green the leaves are. And maybe she even notices it's a hot day. I need a little shade. I'm just going to go over toward the tree. I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to, just going to lie in the shade of the tree. Maybe she props herself up against the trunk of the tree and she takes a little nap. And maybe a little while later she she wakes up, just speculating. This is not in the Bible, but just speculating. And she's like, well, I feel like I need some exercise now. And well, here's a tree. I could climb the tree. And so she climbs up the tree and down the tree, up the tree and down the tree. She climbs up the tree and then way off in the branches, she sees something red over there. She gets a little closer and she's like, well, look, it's, it's round. And, and maybe she thinks, well, I, we, we could play ball. We, we could play, I could go down and we could play ball. We could, we could invent baseball with Adam. And so they, they throw, they throw the ball, but they begin playing with the ball. 
And pretty soon they notice that the ball, it, it's got a little shine to it. And, and she shines it off. So, well, goodness, you can see your reflection in there. She gets a little closer and, and she, she gets a little closer. And she gets, it has a nice aroma, a nice fragrance. Maybe at this point she's like, I, I'm, I'm not smelling real great. So she begins to apply deodorant. Maybe she's an apple f sense, you know. Or, and, oh, you so, and so now she's getting even closer. And, and pretty soon, you know, she's like, oh, if it smells good, it must taste good. But I mean, God said you couldn't eat it, so I won't eat it. I'll just lick it. So she licks it. And maybe she's like, I, well, I'll just taste it. I mean, I, he didn't say you couldn't taste it, right? So she takes a bite, but she doesn't inhale. And she, spins, she, spits, she sp you spits it back out. It's like, you know, I have... Has she sinned yet? God just said don't eat it. As long as you don't swallow, it's not eating technically, right? So she's, she's technically not sinned. But what has she done? She has taken steps to get as close to sin as she possibly can. Instead of avoiding it altogether. That's what a simple person does. Proverbs 22.3 says, A wise man sees the evil coming and hides himself. He diverts his path. But a simple man goes on and is punished. He gets closer and closer and closer to sin. People come up and say, well, you know, where do you draw the line? How, what, how far is too far when it comes to like physical intimacy? Wrong question. Better question. How wide can you make the gap? How far away from sin can you stay? That's a better question, and yet simple people don't ask that question. Here's the second step. It is unfiltered access. Look here at verse 8. Passing along the street near her corner. <gasps> Uh-oh, who's her? We have a second person in the drama now. So he takes a left and then he starts heading down the street. Now he doesn't know she's down there. He's just innocently walking down the street. But he takes the path near her corner. It goes on in verse 8, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So what do we have here? We got a simple guy in the wrong place near her corner at the wrong time at twilight. I mean, discounting the fact that there's vampires available there. Twi twilight and in the evening and at night in the darkness. It's a wrong time. Dude, you are out way too late. And why do we think God can't see in the dark? What, what, why do we think that the cover of darkness hides the shame of sin? It doesn't. So got simple guy, wrong place, wrong time with the wrong people. There are some places that you cannot go and expect to remain sexually pure. I'm not talking about places you go with your feet. I'm talking about places you go with your eyes. There are some apps that I cannot have on my phone because I don't have the willpower to resist things that come through those apps. Some of you shouldn't even have a phone. 
Some of you should have some filters on, all of you should have filters on your internet. All of you should have passwords that you don't know, that don't give you access to certain television channels. There are some places in this city you should not go. There are some things you should not drink. There are some people you should not talk to. Some of you need to break up with quote unquote friends so that you can be sexually pure because those friends aren't helping you win this battle. You cannot expect to win the war if you have unfiltered access. Step number three is a rejection of authority. Look at verse 10. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. And he begins to describe her. She is loud. I mean, she's argumentative and she's wayward. In other words, she's not living the way she was trained to live. She's rejected the counsel, the protection and the direction of her parents. We know that's true because of what it says next. Her feet do not stay at home. Now, her feet are just the vehicle to carry her body and her mind as far from her authority as she can. We know that even more when we skip down to verse 19. Notice what it says. For she's speaking, for my husband is not at home. Now the actual Hebrew word there is simply the man. So it could be her husband. Could also be her dad. So dad's not at home. Where'd he go? He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. So he's on a business trip. And at full moon, he will come home. So she sees this as an opportunity. Dad's not doing his job at home because he's off doing his job with bags of money. So she's left unprotected, undirected, leaving her to do life on her own and learn how to do life from others so there's a rejection of authority. I've spent a lot of time ministering to teenagers. I've been around a lot of teenage girls, a lot of teenage guys. And I've noticed a phenomena among many teenage girls who have not had a healthy relationship with their father. They tend to go in one of two extremes when it comes to their relationships with guys. If they've not received tender talk from their dad, tender time with their dad and tender touch from their dad, they will try to go get that time, that talk, and their touch in the arms of another guy. And they become a very aggressive. They've always got to be in a dating relationship. They're always talking about guys. They, they follow all the guys. They're always talking. Everything's about a guy. They're so aggressive when it comes to guys because they didn't get the tender time, the tender talk, and the tender touch that God intended for them to get from a healthy relationship with their father. That's one extreme. The other extreme is this. They've been hurt by their dad, either through neglect or abuse, and they begin to reason. My dad is hurtful. My dad is a guy. Conclusion, all guys hurt girls. And so they become very distant from guys. And you push that in its furthest extreme, they're not interested in any kind of healthy relationship with a guy, 
You push that in its furthest extreme, where do you go? It's a life of homosexuality. Because they have no respect, no trust, no love, no friendship with a guy. And it all goes back to the relationship with the guy that God put in her life to build a healthy relationship, a rejection of authority. Number four is a flattering invitation. And here's where the ball accelerates. A flattering invitation. This whole time she's talking to him. Up in verse five, it says that she's the adulteress with her smooth words. Look down at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Skip one page back in your Bible. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Talking about the same girl. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. This is honey lips. And she's so sweet. And she just talks and tells you how great you are. It goes on and says, her speech is smoother than oil. Oily words. Honey lips. You're so cute. You're so awesome. You're so smart. You're so godly. Nobody can... Nobody can do it like you. And I just wish my husband was like you. Smooth, sweet, seductive, and deadly. A flattering invitation. So she, she flatters with her words. Now, not only does she flatter with her words, she flatters with her body. Go back to chapter 7. Look here at verse 13. It says, she seizes him. She grabs him. She hugs him. She pulls her to him and kisses him. They just met for crying out loud. And with a bold face, she speaks to him. The word bold there means shameless. So she, she hugs him. She pulls her to him. I do not believe that God made the front part of a woman to make contact with the front part of a man until they are in a covenant love relationship called marriage. Again, go back over to chapter 5. Look down at verse 20. Question is asked. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? All in agreement, bosom, front part? Yeah. That does not need to make contact with a man, ever, unless it's your grandmother and, or your wife. It just, I, and you know, there's a lot of people in church, we're affectionate, we, we, people come up and express appreciation. I have perfected the art as a pastor of the side hug, okay, all right? Or when you're caught and you're kind of trapped, the A-frame hug, hug works as well. You can do the A-frame hug, right? It's very important, these skills, these are ministerial skills, they teach you these things in Bible college. And if they don't teach you 
there, we'll teach them here, okay? This is just not appropriate. That, that, that's reserved for husband-wife relationships. And so seizing and grabbing and touching and massaging off-limits for people who are not in a covenant marriage relationship. Look at verse um, Look at verse 10. It, we skip this. It says, Behold, the woman meets him. She's dressed as a prostitute. Seductive, flattering. The way she's dressing is communicating availability. What she chooses to cover, what she chooses to uncover, what she chooses to expose, what she chooses not to expose. Whether it's too high, too low, too tight, too much, too little, and, and when you start talking about dress in church, everybody freaks out. You, I mean, it's like we can be really legalistic when it comes to dress, and we can be really stupid when it comes to dress. We don't want to make either mistake, okay? People ask sometimes, do you have a dress code at Harvest? Absolutely. You are required to wear clothes every time you come to church. <laughs> That's the dress code, okay? Now, if you can't do it appropriately so hopefully somebody loves you enough to come alongside of you like I don't think you really understand what you're that and here's a sweater I don't know but we it's if you we you are loved you are loved so much that we want to help in this area listen this is serious business I remember when Andrea and I were dating we had just started dating and I was traveling with life action she's back home in Huntsville Alabama she's um we're, we're not engaged yet it's one of the few weekends where we scheduled so that I could go be with her. I hadn't seen her in months. We've been talking, writing letters, pre-cell phone, pre-text message, all of that. And so I was looking forward to seeing her because I remember she looks good and I wanted to go see her. And so I remember we scheduled all this. I was to arrive on Friday at five o'clock right as she was getting off work. She worked at a church that had a daycare. She kept three-year-old little children all day long. And um, I remember I showed up right at five o'clock. Great to see her. She was wearing this beautiful dress that had buttons all the way up the front. The only problem was we couldn't start our weekend uh, until the last three-year-old's mother showed up and the mother was running a little late. And so we went out to the church foyer. We sat on some couches and we just started talking and Andrea was holding this little girl on her lap waiting for her mother to come. And as we were talking, um, I stopped making eye contact with Andrea. I was just kind of observing the fish in the fish tank over here and I'd look up at the painting and then I'd look out the window. And as we were doing this, Andrea was wondering like why are you as a matter of fact she asked me because I've learned later this is important you're supposed to like pay, pay attention make eye contact I've learned this now but she she said what um why are you not looking at me we're talking but you're not what you're not looking at me I said well I just can't right now she's like what do you I don't understand I'm like well it's um you, I know you haven't noticed, but the, the, it's the three-year-old in, in your lap. It's like, what's wrong with the three-year-old? I said, well, you know, we've been sitting here, and for the last five minutes, she's, she's been playing with the buttons on your dress. She hasn't unbuttoned them, but she's playing with the buttons. She said, So? Well, you probably don't understand this, but her playing with the buttons is just making my mind go in a direction of what I would like to do with the buttons. <laughs> and that's just not 
the best thought for me right now, so I'm not looking. And she like, seriously? And I, she, then she said, are you really that perverted? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> now, every time I've ever told that story, I watch the crowd and the ladies are like, and I'm watching guys go, I don't know exactly what he's talking about. How pure do you want to be? This matter of physical affection. When, later on, when Andrew and I got engaged, we, we, we put some boundaries on our relationship. We decided, okay, it's probably not great for us to ever be alone because <laughs> I got these issues. Um, and it's probably not great for us to be in the dark. So, you know, that was a couple of boundaries. And then we, we made a really radical decision. Some of you are not even going to be able to handle this, okay? So here's what we decided. We decided we would not kiss until the day we were married. So you can breathe now, okay? We kiss all the time now. We have four children, the plumbing works. It all, it's all great, okay? So, but I've had people look at me and they're like, you did what? Like, how would you know you would want to marry a woman that you hadn't actually kissed. I always look back and I'm like, well, how would I know I would want to marry her if I did kiss her? I mean, if that's all that's involved, you just line them up, you kiss them, and whichever one sends fireworks up, I guess that's the one. Is that what you're saying? I mean, and, and so we, we didn't kiss because we knew if we didn't kiss, there's a whole lot of other stuff we weren't going to be doing, right? Now, I always, I always tell the story. Three days before the wedding, I kissed her. And it, it was an intentional choice because we didn't want our first kiss to be in front of 500 people that were inspecting the kiss. And so we had a little practice session. It went really well. So uh, we, but you know, it's like, ooh, you broke your promise. All right, well then go three days out. I don't care, but put some boundaries on the relationship to demonstrate that you're different. The reason we did that is for two reasons. Number one, we didn't want the baggage that kissing had caused in other relationships that we had had. And so we just we're, just keep lips away from one another. We can wait. The second reason is because we knew that we would be standing in front of groups of people talking about this issue. And I didn't just want to show you illustrations from the Bible. I wanted to show you an illustration from my life that not everybody's doing it. You're like, well, it's just, you just don't even understand this culture. How could you even expect anybody to live like that in this culture? I remember when we were back in uh, the gym in, at North Point Elementary School, we had just started the church. It was about a year into our church and our church was growing. And there was this young lady that showed up in our church. She was so happy. And she came up and she introduced herself. She said, my name is Scylla. And I've only been a Christian for a few months. I grew up as an atheist. All this stuff is brand new to me, but I just love Jesus and I'm getting into his word and I'm so happy right now. I'm engaged and I'm due to be married in six weeks. I, would, I was wondering, would you perform our wedding ceremony? 
And I'm like, man, this is great. This is exactly the kind of people that, that we want to disciple in our church. And so I really wanted to accommodate her. I, I hooked her and her fiance up with another couple in our church to go through premarital counseling so that we could make sure that, you know, this, this is God's will and everything. So that they began to go through that. And then I met her fiance, Bud. My first conversation with Bud was not a real happy one because um, Bud told me that they had scheduled, by the way, they're sitting right there, that they had scheduled a trip to Cancun. I said, for the honeymoon? He's like, no, way before the wedding. All right, now, hang on. You're, did you get two rooms? No, why would we need two rooms? I'm like, well... Um, is Jesus Lord of your sex life? Is Jesus going to be Lord of your marriage? You want God's blessing on your marriage. And you, you, need to, you need to wait. Well, he was not real happy with that. He spent a lot of money on this trip. And I was like, well, bud, there's, there's good news. Okay, so here, I've done a little checking for you. Um, the family life weekend to remember marriage getaway just happens to be on the same weekend in Fort Wayne. So really what you should do is you need to cancel your trip to Cancun and spend the weekend in Fort Wayne <laughs> in different rooms. And he did it. And he lost all the money that he'd spent on the Cancun trip. A high price to pay to demonstrate my commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my sexuality. Not everybody's doing it. Join the resistance. <laughs> Be different. Be distinct. You'll create a buzz. What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm right. You're wrong. Let me show you God's plan for sexuality so you can be blessed as well. A flattering invitation. Number five, pornography. Don't have a lot of time to dive into this, but have you ever seen pornography in the Bible? It's right here in verse 16. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. You smell that? It smells like a cinnamon roll. And verse 18, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. New American Standard says, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. New American Standard says, let us delight ourselves in caresses. What is pornography? Pornography is anything that stimulates one of your five senses for the purpose of getting a sexual response. We think about what we see, that's one form. Can you see the colored linens from Egyptian Linen, she paints the picture in his mind. So she uses the sense of sight. Then she uses the sense of smell, myrrh, aloe, and cinnamon. Then she uses the sense of taste. Let us drink our fill of love until morning. Doesn't that taste good? And let's delight ourselves in caresses, touch. And what has she been doing the whole time? Talking, the sense of hearing. She, he sees it, he smells it, he tastes it, he touched it, 
and he hears it, and he wants it. Pornography is eroding our sense of holiness over things that are meant to be reserved for couples in a covenant love relationship. And so pornography, we've got, to, we've got to turn that off. It hurts your brain, it hurts relationships, it hurts the world because the whole thing is built on an industry that exploits and traffics humans. And so think about that next time you're tempted. Number six, unfulfilled expectations. It never satisfies. Look down here at verse 21. I want you to imagine the curtain closes. Your dad steps back to the microphone. The spotlight hits him. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And yet, all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver. I bet he wasn't thinking about his liver when he followed her. As a bird rushes into a snare, now he's trapped, now he's caught, now he's addicted, as he does not know that it will cost him his life. Dad speaks in verse 24, Now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. It's not a physical problem. It's a heart problem that's turned away from God and turned toward another person. Do not stray into her past. For many victims she has laid low and all of her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. There's one final stage. It's this. Shallow religion. There's two verses that I skipped intentionally. I want you to go back to them. They're re they really seem out of place. You got this whole drama. There's all this sensual activity going on in the story. And then we read verse 14, right in the middle of the story. What does she say? Actually, go back to 13. She seizes him. She kisses him. With a bold face, she says to him, what would you expect her to say at this point? I love you. I want you. Can't do without you. That's not what verse 14 says. What does he say? I had to offer sacrifices today. I've paid my vows. What? Does that seem a little out of place to you? What was she saying? Where would a young Hebrew girl go to offer sacrifices and pay vows. The place of worship in the presence of God. And she's saying, I've already done my religious duty. I've already been to church. I mean, I already offered sacrifices for all that sexual sin I did last week and so I'm going to engage in some more this week. I can always go back to church next week and get forgiveness from God and I can offer more sacrifices and I can make more, I can pay more vows. I can make more promises to God and he'll overlook it. He's so kind. He's so loving. I mean, after all, God is love and I love to sin. And so we, I've got this great love relationship going on with God and she has no understanding of the depth of what the sacrifices were meant to show. 
All of the blood that was spilled, all of the lambs that were slaughtered pointed to a preview of coming attractions when Jesus is the Lamb of God would lay his life down for sexual sinners. It ought to break your heart that the price that Jesus had to pay was blood for sexual sinners. She says, I paid my vows, thinking that somehow you can pay for your own sin you can pay God off. You can make him look another way. Now, as tragic as that is, I'm looking into the faces of some people that march in and out of the doors of Harvest Bible Chapel every week. You sing your songs, you pay your tithes, you go through the motions, you read your Bible, and maybe you think that simply because you came to the place of worship, God is satisfied and doesn't care about your sexual sin. Let me tell you how much God cares about your sexual sin. He murdered his own son and treated his own son as if he was a sexual sinner so that he could treat sexual sinners as if they hadn't sinned. And if you get that, you will run as far in the opposite direction from sexual sin as you can. It ought to break your heart that Jesus' heart and body were broken on the cross to pay for the sin of sexual sinners like you and me. Shallow religion doesn't do that. Shallow religion teaches you that you can sacrifice and go to church, spend a little time, and God will overlook your sin. That you can make some promises to God and you can pay your own way back to God. No, that's shallow religion. That's what she had, and none of it altered her behavior in any way. How about your behavior? Is your worship and your relationship spiritually with Jesus so intimate that it impacts your physical intimacy with others? Are you playing outside the boundaries that God placed on sex because somehow you don't think God cares anymore? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, The gospel invites sexual sinners to humble themselves, to bring all of the brokenness from sexual sin to the foot of the cross, to see Jesus on that cross, dying in your place. Let the marriage bed be undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You will either be judged guilty or innocent. Not based on your good behavior, but based upon the behavior of Jesus Christ. The remedy for sexual sin is not to stop sinning. You should stop sinning. But the only way to be cleansed from sexual sin is through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. If you've never brought yourself to the foot of that cross, do it now. If you have, do it again.
application of this message may be a hundred different things for a hundred different people. Some of you need to restore a broken relationship with a father and put yourself back under his authority or your mother's authority. Some of you need to cut off access to things that are putting you in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong people. Some of you need to break up a relationship. Some of you need to humble yourself, take off the mask, get honest, and let an accountability partner know the depth of your addiction. Establish a way to pray and keep one another accountable. Some of you need to come to a pastor here today at the end of the service. Some of you need to call a church office and set up some counseling. Don't just walk out of here thinking, I'll do better. You won't. You've tried that before. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for you and pray for me. Lord, thank you for the truth that uh, you've created a wonderful gift and physical intimacy that you want to give to those that are in a marriage relationship. I pray for every single person here that's going to battle this week. Pray for every married couple that's tempted to be unfaithful. I pray for those that are caught in the traps of addiction. And Lord, it's a wonder that we're not all addicted with the temptation that's available to us today. And I pray for your grace that you would release people from those shackles. I pray for more people like Bud and Scylla that would pay a price to be sexually pure. And God, would you make us distinct in our community, through our marriages, through our children, through our discipleship, through our worship and our love for you, so that you can be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.